Section 3, Lay Ministry. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Hirsch. Convictions such as we have just been reading of were bound to lead to immediate action. But it is most interesting to find that William Booth's first regular service for Christ was not called forth by any church, but simply by the spontaneous efforts of one or two young converts like himself. No one could be more inclined towards the use of organization and system than he always was. And yet he always advocated an organization so open to all, and a system so elastic, that zeal might never be repressed, but only made the most of. It is, perhaps, fortunate that we have in one of his addresses to his own young officers the following description of the way he began to work for the salvation of his fellow townsmen. Directly after my conversion, I had a bad attack of fever and was brought to the very edge of the grave. But God raised me up and led me out to work for him after a fashion which, considering my youth and inexperience, must be pronounced remarkable. While recovering from this illness, which left me far from strong, I received a note from a companion, Will Sansom, asking me to make haste and get well again and help him in a mission he had started in a slum part of the town. No sooner was I able to get about than I gladly joined him. The meetings we held were very remarkable for those days. We used to take out a chair into the street, and one of us, mounting it, would give out a hymn, which we then sang with the help of, at the most, three or four people. Then I would talk to the people and invite them to come with us to a meeting in one of the houses. How I worked in those days! Remember that I was only an apprentice lad of fifteen or sixteen. I used to leave business at seven o'clock, or soon after, and go visiting the sick. Then these street meetings, and afterwards to some meeting in a cottage, where we would often get someone saved. After the meeting, I would often go to see some dying person, arriving home about midnight to rest all I could before rising next morning in time to reach my place of business at 7 a.m. That was sharp exercise. How I can remember rushing along the streets during my 40 minutes dinner time, reading the Bible or C.G. Finney's lectures on revivals of religion as I went. Careful, too, not to be a minute late. And at this time I was far from strong physically. But, full of difficulties as those days were, they were nevertheless wonderful seasons of blessing and left pleasant memories that endure to this hour. The leading men of the church to which I belonged were afraid I was going too fast and gave me plenty of cautions quaking and fearing at my every new departure. But none gave me a word of encouragement, and yet the society of which for those six apprentice years I was a faithful member was literally my heaven on earth. Truly, I thought then there was one God, 
that John Wesley was his prophet and that the Methodists were his special people. The church was at the time, I believe, 1,000 members strong. Much as I loved them, however, I mingled but little with them and had time for but few of their great gatherings, having chosen the Metalplatz as my parish, because my heart then, as now, went out after the poorest of the poor. Thus my conversion made me, in a moment, a preacher of the gospel. The idea never dawned on me that any line was to be drawn between one who had nothing else to do but preach and a saved apprentice lad who only wanted to spread through all the earth abroad, as we used to sing, the fame of our Savior. I have lived, thank God, to witness the separation between layman and cleric become more and more obscured, and to see Jesus Christ's idea of changing, in a moment, ignorant fishermen into fishers of men, nearer and nearer realization. But I had to battle for ten of the best years of my youth against the barriers the churches set up to prevent this natural following of the Lamb wherever he leads. At that time, they all but compelled those who wished to minister to the souls of men to speak in unnatural language and tones, and adopt habits of mind and life which so completely separated them from the crowd as to make them into a sort of princely caste whom the masses of every clime outwardly reverenced and inwardly despised. Lad though I was, a group of new converts and other earnest souls soon gathered around me, and greater things seemed to be ahead when a great trial overtook me. The bosom friend already referred to was taken from my side. We had been like David and Jonathan in the intensity of our union and fellowship in our work for God. He had a fine appearance, was a beautiful singer, and possessed a wonderful gift in prayer. After I had spoken in our open-air meeting, he would kneel down and wrestle with God until it seemed as though he would move the very stones on which he knelt, as well as the hearts of the people who heard him. Of how few of those men called ministers or priests can anything like this be said? But the unexpected blow came. He fell into consumption. His relations carried him up and down the country for change of air and scene, all was done that could be done to save his life, but in vain. The last change was to the Isle of Wight. In that lovely spot the final hope fled. I remember their bringing him home to die. He bade farewell to earth and went triumphantly to heaven, singing, And when to Jordan's flood I come, Jehovah rules the tide and the waters he'll divide, and the heavenly host will shout, Welcome home! What a trial that loss was to my young heart. It was rendered all the greater from the fact that I had to go forward all alone in face of an opposition which suddenly sprang up from the leading functionaries of the church. 
The consecration which William Booth made of himself to this work, with all the zeal and novelty with which it was characterized, was no doubt to the teaching, influence, and example of James Coffey, a remarkable American minister who visited the town. Largely free from European opinions and customs in religious matters, and seeking only to advance the cause of Jesus Christ with all possible speed, this man, to a very large extent, liberated William Booth for life from any one set of plans, and led him toward that perfect faith in God's guidance which made him capable of new departures to any extent. The old-fashioned representatives of officialdom grumbled in vain at novelties which had now become accepted necessities of all mission work. But just about this time, the general has told us, another difficulty started across my path in connection with my business. I have told you how intense had been the action of my conscience before my conversion. But after my conversion, it was naturally ever increasingly sensitive to every question of right and wrong, with a great preponderance as to the importance of what was right over what was wrong. Ever since that day, it has led me to measure my own actions and judge my own character by the standard of truth set up in my soul by the Bible and the Holy Ghost, and it has not permitted me to allow myself in the doing of things which I have felt were wrong without great inward torture. I have always had a great horror of hypocrisy, that is, of being unreal or false, however fashionable the cursed thing might be, or whatever worldly temptation might strive to lead me on to the track. In this I was tested again and again in those early days, and at last there came a crisis. Our business was a large one, and the assistants were none too many. On Saturdays there was always a great pressure. Work often continued into the early hours of Sunday. Now, I had strong notions in my youth and for long after, indeed I entertain them now, about the great importance of keeping the Sunday, or Sabbath as we always called it, clear of unnecessary work. For instance, I walked in my young days thousands of miles on the Sabbath, when I could, for a trifling sum, have ridden at ease, rather than use any compulsory labor of man or beast for the promotion of my comfort. I still think we ought to abstain from all unnecessary work ourselves, and, as far as possible, arrange for everybody about us to have one day's rest in seven. But, as I was saying, I objected to working at my business on the Sabbath, which I interpreted to mean after twelve o'clock on Saturday night. My relatives and many of my religious friends laughed at my scruples, but I paid no heed to them, and told my master I would not do it, though he replied that if that were so, he would simply discharge me. I told him I was willing to begin on Monday mornings as soon as the clock struck twelve, and work until the clock struck twelve on Saturday night, 
but that not one hour or one minute of Sunday would I work for him or all his money. He kept his word, put me into the street, and I was laughed at by everybody as a sort of fool. But I held out, and within seven days he gave in, and thinking my scrupulous conscience might serve his turn, he told me to come back again. I did so, and before another fortnight had passed, he went off with his young wife to Paris, leaving the responsibilities of the business involving the income and expenditure of hundreds of pounds weekly on my young shoulders. So I did not lose by that transaction in any way. With no little suffering on four separate occasions, contrary to the judgments of all around me, I have thus left every friend I had in the world, and gone straight into what appeared positive ruin, so far as this world was concerned, to meet the demands of conscience. But I have trusted God, and done the right, and in every separate instance I can now see that I have gained both for this world and the next as a result. During all the period of my lay preaching, both in Nottingham and London, I had to grapple with other difficulties. What with one thing and another, I had a great struggle at times to keep my head above the waters, and my heart alive with peace and love. But I held on to God and His grace, and the never-failing joy that I experienced in leading souls to Christ carried me through. How can anybody fail to see how much more the masses are likely to be influenced by preaching, no matter how defective oratorically, of one who has thus lived in the midst of them, living, in fact, their very life of anxiety, suffering, and toil, than by that of men, however excellent, who come to them in the atmosphere of the study, the college, or the seminary. And yet, after having been trained for a year in the rough-and-ready oratory of the streets, subject to interruptions and interjected sneers, the general was called upon, in order to be recognized as fit for registration as a lay preacher, to mount the pulpit and preach a trial sermon. Accustomed as he had become to talk out his heart with such words and illustrations as involuntarily presented themselves to the simple-minded, though often wicked and always ignorant crowds, who gathered around the chair on which he stood, able without difficulty to hold their attention when he had won it, and drive the truth home to their souls, in spite of the counter-attractions of a busy thoroughfare, he took very hardly to the stiff, cold process of sermonizing and sermon-making, such as was then in vogue, and it was some time before he had much liberty or made much progress in the business. Still, in due time he was passed, first as a lay preacher on trial, and later called as fully qualified to preach at any chapel in the district. This latter, after a second year's activities, and a second trial sermon. When he once got onto this sermon-making line, he took the best models he could find. Men like John Wesley, George Whitefield, and above all C.G. Finney, who he could be certain had never sought in their preaching for human applause, 
but for the glory of God and the good of souls alone. In the Psalms, as in the Gospels and the Acts of the Apostles, we have the most unmistakable guidance upon this subject, showing it to have been God's purpose so to pour out his Spirit upon all flesh that all his people should be true prophets. Not all, of course, of the same caliber or style, but all capable of warning and teaching, in all wisdom, everyone who they could reach. The work of the ministry is another thing altogether. Let no one suppose that the Salvation Army at all underrates the separation unto his work of those whom God has chosen for entire devotion to some task, whatever it be. As to those whom we take away from their secular calling to become our officers, I will only say here that we judge of their fitness not alone by their ability to speak, but by their having proved themselves to be so devoted to the poor that we can rely upon their readiness to act as servants of the very neediest in any way that lies within their power. Only two persons at each of our stations the officers actually in command, receive any payment whatever from the army. All the others associated with us, many of them wearing our uniform and holding some particular office, give freely their leisure time and money to the work, and may be spoken of as lay preachers. Our young local preacher generally spent his Sundays in some distant village where he had been appointed to preach, just as is the case in these days with thousands of our soldiers. My homeward walk, often alone through the dark, muddy fields and lanes, he tells us, would be enlivened by snatches of the songs we had been singing in our meetings, and late into the night people might have heard my solitary prayers and praises. Don't sit up singing till twelve o'clock after a hard day's work was one of the first needed pieces of practical advice I got from my best adviser of later years. But we never felt we could have too much of God's service and praise, and scarcely regarded the grave itself as a terminus for our usefulness. For in the case of a girl who had attended our cottage meetings and who had died of consumption, we lads organized something very like one of our present-day Salvation Army funerals. Having ministered to the poor girl's necessities during her sickness, comforted her in her last hours of pain, sung hymns of triumph around her bed as her spirit took its passage to the skies. We had the right, as her only friends, to order her funeral, and we resolved to make the most of it for the good of her neighbors. Although it was in the depth of winter, and snow lay thick on the ground, we brought the coffin out into the street, sang and prayed around it, and urged the few neighbors who stood shivering by, or listening in their doors and windows, to prepare for their dying day. Then we processioned to the cholera burial ground as the cemetery in which the poorest of Nottingham were buried was called, obtaining permission from the chaplain to hold another little meeting by the graveside, after he had read the ordinary service. 
I cannot but feel that the hand of God was upon me in those days, teaching me how much lay preachers could do. How wonderful that the lad who did all that in the teeth of religious convention and opinion should have lived to organize just such battles and just such funerals all around the world, and to train hundreds of thousands of soldiers of Christ to do likewise. What a termination to his own career he was preparing all the time, when the city of London was to suspend the traffic of many of its busiest thoroughfares for hours to let his coffin pass through with a procession of his uniformed soldiers a mile long. With regard to the question of a call to ministry, that bugbear of so many souls, the general constantly expressed himself as follows. How can anybody with spiritual eyesight talk of having no call when there are such multitudes around them who never hear a word about God and never intend to? Who can never hear, indeed, without the sort of preacher who will force himself upon them? Can a man keep right in his own soul, who can see all that and yet stand waiting for a call to preach? Would they wait so for a call to help anyone to escape from a burning building or to snatch a sinking child from a watery grave? Does not growth in grace or even ordinary growth of intelligence necessarily bring with it that deepened sense of eternal truths which must intensify the conviction of duty to the perishing world? Does not an unselfish love, the love that goes out towards the unloving, of a truly loving soul, immediate action for the salvation of the unloved? And are there not persons who know that they possess special gifts, such as robust health, natural eloquence, or power of voice, which specially makes them responsible for doing something for souls? And yet I do not at all forget that above and beyond all these things, there does come to some a special and direct call, which it is peculiarly fatal to disregard, and peculiarly strengthening to enjoy and act upon. I believe that there have been many eminently holy and useful men who never had such a call. But, that does not at all prevent anyone from asking God for it or blessing him for his special kindness when he gives it. There is, I think, no doubt that God did give to young William Booth such a call, although he never spoke of it, perhaps lest he might discourage any who, without enjoying any such manifestation, acted upon the principles just referred to. At any rate, he battled through any season of doubt he had with regard to it and came out into a certainty that left him no room for question or fear. End of chapter 3, Lay Ministry Recording by Tom Hirsch